it's a great pleasure tonight to introduce our lecturer, Professor Johannes Haubold. Mr. Haubold is a professor of classics at Princeton University. He had previously taught at Durham University, and prior to that, earned his MPhil and his PhD in classics at Cambridge. His first several books treated Homer in particular, and this will be the subject about which we will hear from him tonight. He's invested quest questions such as, what did Homer's poems mean to its audience in an ancient Greek context? It's interesting to note that he's expanded his studies to Near Eastern languages of Akkadian, Hebrew, Old Persian. In this vein, he's worked on subjects such as whether Greek epic can be understood as part of a broader, wider, um, general phenomenon of Near Eastern cosmic history. Or how did the Persians understand their invasion of Greece under Xerxes? He's aimed to integrate the study of classical languages and of ancient Near Eastern languages, and to encourage, in his words, more acts of neighbor, neighborly border crossing in the teaching of classical languages and literature. His work has extended as well to the so-called astronomical diaries, the Babylonian records of astronomical events, indirectly known to us at St. John's through Ptolemy, of course. Professor Haubold is the recipient of many honors. He's a member of the Academy of Europe. He's held visiting positions at the Center of Hellenic Studies, the University of Leiden, and the Co-Pratique des Autetudes in Paris. I just wanted to mention that, you know, after the lecture, we'll, of course, have an opportunity to mingle. There should be coffee and um, tea and we'll reconvene here in the Great Hall for the question period shortly thereafter. Tonight's lecture is entitled, We the Heroes or We the People? Leadership in the Homeric Epic. Please join me in welcoming Professor Johannes Haubold. Thank you for that very kind welcome. Thank you for the warm welcome, too. Um, I was just saying, I've heard so much about St. John's, uh, about the lively uh, atmosphere the, um, of, of intellectual endeavor um, that, uh, that uh, you have here. And um, you know, just looking around the room already uh, bears that out. I'm delighted to be with you. And I look forward to an evening of thinking about Homer together. Can you all hear me all right? Yeah? Okay. Well then, when we read Homer's epics, we find it hard to resist the lure of his characters. Achilles, of course, and his wily counterpart Odysseus. But also Telemachus, Agamemnon, Nestor, Hector, Paris, Helen, Penelope, the list goes on. Already ancient readers were amazed by Homer's powers of characterization. The Homeric scholia, which preserve much of the classical commentary tradition in the form of marginal notes in the medieval manuscripts, these scholia do not tire of celebrating that aspect of Homer's art. And that makes sense, given what Homer says about epic. Achilles in Iliad 9 entertains himself by singing the, quote, famous deeds of heroes, the Claire Androne in a clear allusion to epic itself. And this is the first 
passage, I think, uh, on your handout. Do you all have a handout? Yes? Okay. Great. Penelope in Odyssey 1 describes Epic as the famous deeds of gods and heroes which the singers celebrate. It's also on your handout. It makes sense that Homer should show us the heroes in vivid, relatable detail if that is what his audiences enjoyed and expected. But the deeds and words and feelings of individual heroes are not the only focus of Homeric poetry. Those heroes also lead groups of people whose care is placed into their hands. You see this already in the catalog of ships in Iliad 2, which introduces not just the main protagonists of the poem, but also the people who follow them. This is the next passage on your handout. In fact, you will have noticed that we often begin with the people and only then move on to the heroes. In some cases where those heroes are absent, the narrator even comments that the people were missing them. Passage, passage three on the handout. Clearly, they are not just cannon fodder, even in this very pared down list, but human beings with their own longings and anxieties. The Iliad keeps coming back to this. Just one book later in Iliad 3, Achaeans and Trojans strike a temporary truce and ask Menelaus and Paris to settle their differences. The people on both sides are delighted and they pray to Zeus for peace. Zeus, of course, does not hear them, but we do. Just as elsewhere, we hear the voices of anonymous characters emerge from the ranks. Now, beyond making their feelings known, the people also participate actively in the action of the Iliad, or perhaps I should say they suffer from its consequences. From the moment in Book One when Apollo sends a plague and the people perish, their well-being is on the poet's mind, and indeed on that of his heroes. Still in Iliad I, Agamemnon is very reluctant indeed to return his prize of honor, but he declares, quote, it is better to keep the people safe than, safe than let them perish. So off she goes. In Iliad II, the same Agamemnon frets that he may have to return home with his reputation in Tatas because he says he has, quote, destroyed many people. This, I think, is also on your handout. At that point, Agamemnon is only pretending, but he repeats the same words in Iliad 9, and this time he means them. By now, Agamemnon has, in fact, lost or destroyed many of his people, and things are only going to get worse. There will be no redemption. Meanwhile, Agamemnon's counterpart on the Trojan side, Hector, has his own moment of reckoning near the end of the Iliad. Achilles has chased the Trojans back into their city and Hector ponders whether to retreat with them. He acknowledges that he has made a mistake by keeping his people outside the walls of Troy on the previous night. Now they are getting slaughtered and the public verdict will be devastating indeed. Then, deeply vexed, Hector spoke to his great-hearted spirit, alas, if I retreat inside the gates and walls, 
Polydamas will be the first to reproach me, for he urged me to lead the Trojans back into the city during that fateful night when brilliant Achilles arose. I did not listen, though it would have been much better. But now, seeing I have ruined the people, I have destroyed the people, recklessly, in my blind folly, I am ashamed of the Trojans and the Trojan women with trailing robes, lest some other lesser man may say, Hector, trusting in his strength, destroyed the people. So they will say, but for me, it would be better far to face Achilles and kill him and so get, me, get home, or myself perish gloriously outside the city. Hector accepts that he caused the death of his people. Now he is ashamed of his fellow Trojans, men and women, lest someone worse than him might say, Hector destroyed the people. This is a trial of sorts, if only an imaginary one, and Hector takes it very seriously. Initially, he imagines blame coming from a social inferior, which would in itself be a source of shame. But in the end, that consideration fades from view. Thus, they will speak. Hector sums up the verdict, and that is sufficient to make him choose combat and certain death. Of course, all this happens because of Achilles, arguably the most important of all Iliadic heroes. His withdrawal from the battlefield makes Agamemnon lose his people, and his reappearance makes Hector lose his. You might call that collateral damage, the unfortunate side effect of Achilles' obsessive character. And indeed, the Iliad starts with Achilles' capacity for tantrums on full display. Agamemnon has slighted him, so Achilles retaliates by withdrawing from the Achaean war effort. This leads to defeat, the death of Patroclus, the death of Hector, and finally Achilles' own death. A classic case, you might say, of testosterone-driven gamesmanship gone out of hand. But there is more to it, as I will now try to convince you. Achilles does not just throw a temper tantrum in Iliad 1. He acts on the advice of his mother, a goddess, and he also hits Agamemnon where it hurts. Achilles understands that a shepherd of the people, which is Agamemnon's main title in the Iliad, a shepherd of the people is responsible for the well-being of the people. Shepherds are supposed to look after the flock in Homer as elsewhere, and you can see that in countless similes in the Iliad where shepherds try to defend their flocks against predators. And Homeric shepherds of the people, chief among them Agamemnon, must ensure that their human flock is safe. We have already seen what happens when they do not. Agamemnon suffers a dramatic loss of faith. Uh, Hector pays with his life. Achilles understands all this very well, and we know that because he says so. In Iliad 9, when faced with Agamemnon's grudging attempt to make amends, 
he refuses, and with biting sarcasm suggests that the Achaeans find another resource that might help them, quote, save the ships and the people of the Achaeans. There is a swipe here at resourceful Odysseus, who will have to convey this message to Agamemnon. But above all, Achilles plays on Agamemnon's vulnerability as a shepherd of the people. He knows that Agamemnon must protect the people and that his inability to do so will eventually force him to back down. Now in Iliad 1, the god Apollo has already used exactly this mechanism to make Agamemnon surrender his own gift of honor, Crusades. Remember that line in book one, Apollo sent an evil plague and the people perished. Agamemnon doesn't want to yield Crusades, he's quite clear on that, but he also understands that he must keep the people safe and be seen to do so. After the plague, Apollo's priest Chrysus spells out the gruesome bargain he struck with his patron God. You honored me, he says there to Apollo, and did great damage to the people of the Achaeans. Now in Iliad 16, line 237, Achilles repeats these exact same words to thank Zeus for restoring his honor. Repeated lines are, of course, common in Homer. You will have noticed this while reading through the poems. There has been good research on why that is, why Homer repeats himself so much. All those epithets, swift-footed Achilles, over and over again, resourceful Odysseus, etc. Repeated formulae, repeated lines, Entire scenes repeated, we call them type scenes. All that apparatus of repetition, uh, which is often a challenge to the modern reader, has been well studied and is now well understood, thanks mostly to the work of American scholars Milman Parry and Albert Lord. Parry and Lord studied living poetic traditions in the Balkans and elsewhere and showed that repetitions arise in a context of improvised storytelling. To this day, oral bards who improvise a performance, an epic performance, find it useful to have these building blocks uh, at their disposal. They enable them to get through a line, a scene, an episode without delay or interruption. And they give the story just the right sort of ring. To Homer and his audience, formulaic expression encapsulated the essence of epic. Repetition isn't meaningless, but on the contrary, supercharges Homeric language with meaning. Consider the Homeric phrase, shepherd of the people, which I have already mentioned. It occurs more than 50 times in the epics and always in the same place at the end of the line. Poimenilao, poimenilao. 
to an oral performer, this is convenient. You know how to fill your line. But it also says something about poetic priorities. The caring relationship of a leader with his people was obviously important enough to Homer to bear repeating. And Homer also repeats the phrase, he destroyed the people, all is on in Greek, many times at the end of the line, again suggesting a focus on communal care and communal suffering. Returning then to the repeated line from which I started this little digression, you honored me by doing great damage to the people of the Achaeans, or you honored me and did great damage. Here we have only one single repetition which suggests a specific link between two scenarios, Apollo and his priest and Zeus and Achilles. The question arises of how parallel these really are. Well, no one except Agamemnon ever criticizes the priest Chrysus in the Iliad, but people do criticize Achilles. In Iliad 11, this is again on your handout, this passage, Nestor is in conversation with Patroclus. By this point, most of the Achaean leaders have been wounded and the Achaeans are on the retreat. Nestor wishes he was still young and able to intervene, but no, there is nothing for it. Achilles alone can help. At this point, Nestor makes an ominous prediction. Achilles, he says, will cry many tears after damaging the people. But Achilles will alone have profit of his valor, for I predict he will cry many tears after the people have perished. That, of course, is precisely what will happen. Achilles will suffer after damaging the people, and the turning point in his quest for satisfaction comes precisely with that fateful prayer in Iliad 16, where he acknowledges that Zeus has restored his honor. We all know what happens next. Achilles is still not ready to return to battle, so he sends Patroclus instead, his friend, his love, his second self. Patroclus is killed, and at that point, Achilles finally relents, but it's too late. Without Patroclus, his life has lost its purpose. He will avenge him, of course, cruelly and thoroughly. This is Achilles. But it will bring him no relief. In the end, in his great speech in Iliad 24, Achilles accepts that he is just one wretched human being among others. He will die soon after. And with that, we come full circle. Remember what I said at the beginning of this lecture? Homer isn't just interested in his great characters, but also in their role as leaders. It now turns out that these two are intertwined. Achilles is such a fascinating, fascinating character precisely because he does not live in a vacuum, much as he himself wishes he did.
has this famous and really rather chilling passage in book 16 of the Iliad, which some of you may remember, where he fantasizes about everyone else just dying and Patroclus and uh, Achilles being left to conquer Troy on their own. But I realize that I have so far concentrated on the Iliad. What about the Odyssey then? Surely there we focus on one hero without all the fuss about the people. Well, that's true at one level. Already the first word of the text, of course, refers to Odysseus, although it doesn't give his name famously. It holds back his name, withholds his name until later. It says, man, I shall sing of the man, andramoi enepe, muse, tell me of the man. But this is Odysseus, of course, and from then on, he dominates the narrative at one level. But at another level, if you now think of Odysseus's account of his travels in books 9 to 12 of the Odyssey, that account still features the people he led to Troy. In fact, it explains how Odysseus lost them and it ends the moment they are gone. It didn't have to be that way. Homer could have told us many more stories just about Odysseus. We'll see in a moment that the material for them was readily available. But no, Odysseus travels with his people. And Homer wants us to think about what that means. Take Odysseus' visit to the cave of the Cyclops. Yes, he withholds his own name, telling Polyphemus he is called nobody, Utis. That trick has been much discussed, and rightly so, because it seems so quintessentially Odyssean. What is sometimes forgotten is the fact that Odysseus does give a name early on, only not his own. This is again on your handout. We are from Troy, Achaeans, driven wandering by all manner of winds over the great gulf of the sea. Seeking our home, we have come by another way, by other paths, so it has pleased Zeus. And we declare that we are the men of Agamemnon, son of Atreus, the people of Agamemnon, he actually says, son of Atreus, whose fame is now mightiest under heaven. So great a city did he sack and destroyed many people. All right, so Odysseus introduces himself and his men as the people of Agamemnon, who became famous for sacking Troy and destroying many people. Whose people exactly? The Greek is ambiguous, and that is surely significant. It's as though Odysseus were hyperlinking to the Iliad at this crucial moment in the story. You know all that trouble with Agamemnon and his people. Of course, none of that means anything to the Cyclops, who after all thinks that eating Odysseus last is an appropriate guest gift. But it does mean something to us, the audience, because we all know the Iliad. So even here, in the cave of a man-eating monster, the people whose plight we have followed so closely in the Iliad do still matter. And their death in the course of Odysseus' travels 
does not go unnoticed. At the end of the Odyssey, a character who is hostile to the hero tries to hold him to account. This is again on your handout. Friends, this man has truly devised a monstrous deed against the Achaeans. Some he led in his ships, many good men, and he's lost the hollow ships and destroyed the people. And others again he has killed on his return, and these by far the best of the Kephalenians. The man who speaks these lines is called Eupaces, which in Greek means something like the persuasive one. Eupathel, persuading well. And what Eupaces says here would certainly be persuasive in the Iliad. After all, Odysseus did lead out his people and came back without them. Does that not warrant some sort of reckoning? The people of Troy would certainly agree, at least as Hector imagines them. Remember that passage in Iliad 22? They will say Hector, trusting in his strength, destroyed the people. In the Odyssey, the poet insists that Odysseus' comrades, as he likes to call them, were alone to blame for their demise. That is convenient, we might say, especially compared with Eupathes' alternative. But would audiences familiar with the Iliad have bought it? And again, all ancient audiences of the Odyssey were familiar with the Iliad. This is what makes Eupathes so dangerous to Odysseus himself, but also to the Odyssey poet who is trying to tell a different story and so Eupathes must die in what you might call the first show trial of a political dissident in the history of Western literature. There will be no more uncomfortable questions about Odysseus' leadership. But let's not bury Eupathes too quickly. He also had a second charge, remember? Odysseus hasn't just destroyed his people, but he's also killed the best of the Kephalenians. On that, we appear to be on firmer ground. We know because the poet has told us time and again that these supposedly excellent men of Kephalonia were squatters and scroungers in Odysseus's home, and that they were meddling with his wife. Certainly by Homeric standards, Odysseus had every right to kill them. Right? Right. But now consider what the suitor Eurymachus says to Odysseus just because he before he dies. And this is again on your handout. But now Antinous, who was to blame for it all, lies dead. For it was he who devised these deeds, not so much through desire or need of marriage, but with another purpose, which Zeus did not bring to pass for him, that in the land of settled Ithaca he might himself be king and might ambush your son and kill him. But now he lies dead, as was his due. But you... Spare your people. 
All right, Eurymachus tries to deflect blame. Antinous was responsible for what happened in Odysseus' house, and he's already dead. So far, so predictable. But then Eurymachus goes on to say something rather more interesting. Remember that little scene in the cave of the Cyclops. We are the people of Agamemnon, Odysseus had said there, appealing to his host's understanding of what that meant. Now Eurymachus says to Odysseus, we are your people, and spells out what he thinks that means. Take care of us, or at the very least, don't kill us. Odysseus rejects both the identification and the request. He sees only suitors and wants only revenge. That's also been the poet's line from the word go, pretty much, from the poem. But you see how a different reading surfaces from time to time and encroaches rather uncomfortably on the approved version of the story. Now what this suggests is that the Iliad's concern for the people still operates in the Odyssey, though it's rather hidden away. It's still there though, and you can tell that this is true from a passage in Book 19, where Odysseus compares Penelope to an ideal ruler. Woman, no mortal, this is on your handout, Woman, no mortal upon the boundless earth could find fault with you, for your fame goes up to the broad heaven as does the fame of a blameless king who with the fear of the gods in his heart rules over many mighty men upholding justice. And the black earth bears wheat and barley, and the trees are laden with fruit. The flocks bring forth young unceasingly, and the sea yields fish, all from his good rule, and the people prosper under him. What we have here is one of the famous reverse similes of the Odyssey. If anyone is like the perfect king, it ought to be Odysseus himself. Remember, he is the speaker, he's addressing Penelope. That he uses this simile of Penelope speaks volumes about the relationship they have, a relationship of like-mindedness, homo frosune, as Homer would put it. In any case, Odysseus knows what is expected of a good ruler. Such a man fears the gods, ensures justice in the land, guarantees general fertility, and in this way allows the people to prosper. That's the climax of the speech, and it marks the ultimate goal of good kingship. Will Odysseus himself live up to this ideal? What will be his end game? The place to look for an answer is a prophecy that the seer Tiresias gives in the underworld, gives Odysseus in the underworld. This is in book 11 of the Odyssey. The beginning of this prophecy is familiar. Odysseus will arrive home late and with difficulty and then find his house overrun by enemies whom he proceeds to kill. This is as far as the Odyssey itself will take us. 
but more is to come. Odysseus will travel again until he finds a land whose inhabitants do not recognize even basic seafaring equipment. His famous final journey stretches the, uh, sketches the kind of odyssey that our text has refused us. Odysseus on his own and traveling not back home, but outward to the edges of the world. Now it's been shown that this coda, as you might call it, is crucial to our understanding of Odysseus and his peculiar brand of heroism. But even that is not the end of it. Tiresias, the seer, caps his prophecy by predicting Odysseus' death. And this is what he says. And death shall come to you far from the sea, a gentle death which will kill you when you are overcome with shining old age. And around the people will prosper or will be blessed. Odysseus will later repeat Tiresias' prophecy in bed with Penelope, another significant example of unique repetition in Homeric poetry. And this repetition gives Odysseus an opportunity to reaffirm in his own voice the final stages of the prophecy after the first two have come to pass. Having completed his homecoming, his nostos, as Homer calls it, Odysseus now looks ahead to a lonely life of travel by sea and a death on land among his people. It is as though the tensions that have been running through this character have finally cracked it apart so that we are left with Odysseus, the trickster and eternal survivor on the one hand and a dead Homeric leader on the other. The classicist Uwe Hölscher has spoken of the Odyssey as suspended between the folk tale and the novel. Rather than resorting to these modern categories, which wouldn't have meant much to ancient audiences, we might say that the Odyssey, like the Iliad, is suspended between two ways of looking at individual heroes, both of them equally traditional in Greek epic, either as characters concerned with their own standing and achievements, which in Odysseus' case brings an emphasis on versatility and resourcefulness, or as leaders with a duty of care towards their people. The fact that Odysseus ends up traveling alone and that the people around him flourish finally after he has died suggests that these two sides of his personality may not be strictly compatible. Which brings me back to the more general question of how Homer reconciles his interest in the heroes with his concern for the people. Or rather, what would ancient audiences have made of the fact that he never fully recon reconciles them? Would they have been as interested in the issue as I have argued the Homeric narrator was? Would they have felt an affinity with the people or would they have seen themselves in their leaders? We the heroes or we the people? 
In answer to these questions, let me review briefly what we know about the earliest audiences of Homer. You may recall from reading the Odyssey that it describes epic performances in the houses of wealthy patrons like the Phaeacian king Alcinous um, and, of course, Odysseus himself. It seems likely that similar performances also happened uh, in historical times, though we have more evidence for large-scale public settings, rather like the one in Odyssey 8, where Demodocus performs before the Phaeacians. The song about Ares' love of Ares' love affair with Aphrodite that he sings on that occasion offers a humorous take on the genre of epic hymns to the gods, which circulated under the name of Homer in antiquity. So Homer, not just known as the composer of the Iliad and Odyssey, but also of these shorter poems in honor of the gods. These shorter Homeric hymns served as prefaces to performances of heroic epic, so it is significant that some of them contain references to religious festivals as their settings. In fact, such festival settings fit well with what we know from other types of evidence. Homeric epic, the Iliad and Odyssey, as well as shorter poems, like the hymns, were typically performed at religious festivals all over Greece. And of those festivals, the New Year's festival at Athens in honor of the patron deity Athena, which we call the Panathenaia, already the Athenians called the Panathenaia, that became especially important. So you can see what we are doing. We are pivoting from text to performance. And why are we doing this? Well, Homeric epic, we said at the start, comes out of a tradition of oral storytelling in performance. The formulas that I discussed earlier can only be explained as the residue of that tradition. Shepherd of the people, resourceful Odysseus, and so on. But of course, at some point, some epic songs must have been recorded in writing. We, after all, have them in writing. We do not know when that happened for the first time, where and how that is the so-called Homeric question. And if someone tells you they know the answer to it, don't believe them. No one does. Still, there is pretty good evidence that the Panathenaia festival in Athens had a role to play in the making of the Homeric text. The Athenians had a law that said the Homeric poems had to be performed at the great Panathenaia, the sort of uh, every four years, they had a sort of expanded version of the Panathenaia. And they had a law that stipulated that Homer had to be performed on that occasion. So it stands to reason that they would have wanted a written text against which to check that the performers got it right. Our texts of the Iliad and Odyssey may well derive from that context, also because their language has a discernible Attic tinge. So the, the dialect, the Greek dialect that was spoken in Athens, that seems to have left a trace in the language of the Homeric epics. And why is that significant? Why am I even mentioning this? Because um, the main dialect of the Homeric epics 
is not Attic at all, but Ionic, a form of Greek that was uh, spoken further to the east. These are details. What matters here is the fact that the Iliad and Odyssey, which you have all just read, would have been performed as part of this major festival in honor of Athena. This occasion in the Athenian calendar year when the people of Athens met to celebrate their city and reaffirm its institutions. They effectively, ritually refounded Athens on this occasion. I've already mentioned that every four years the city sponsored an expanded version, the Great Panathenaia, which was accompanied by elaborate pageantry. There was a grand procession for Athena, there were athletic contests of various kinds, and there were musical contests of which Homeric performances were the most important. On this occasion, when the Athenians, the Athenian people, gathered to celebrate themselves and their city, they must have felt an affinity with the people in Homer. The Greek poet Simonides tells us that Homer sang to the people, using the same rather specialized term that Homer himself uses in the Iliad and Odyssey. This is the word laos, the people which you may sometimes find translated as army or host, it does not have an exclusively military meaning. Now what this poet Simonides says, Homer sang to the people. That makes sense because the people act as an audience already within the Homeric epics. Think of any number of assemblies where they sit and listen to their leader's speeches. Or think of the funeral games for Patroclus in Iliad 23, which start with the people assembling and end when they disperse. In Odyssey 8, the assembled people of the Phaeacians first watch athletic contests and then listen to Demodocus perform the song of Ares and Aphrodite that I've just looked at. Those listening to the Iliad and Odyssey at the Athena festival of Athens, the Panathenaia, would not have found it difficult to identify with other large-scale audiences of this kind, all the more so because they too had assembled as the people of Athens in this case. In ancient Athens, major religious festivals opened with a formal announcement to the people to come and gather Come here, come hither, all ye people. And this announcement, which was by all accounts traditional, archaic, featured again that Homeric term, Laos, for people, which by this point was obsolete in normal language. The people in the story had their counterpart outside it. Now, all this isn't to say that audiences in classical Athens couldn't also have identified with the heroes, thought about the heroes, and of course that's what they did for a lot of the time. For a start, there were other occasions on which to encounter the Iliad and Odyssey, not just uh, the Panathenaia, not just the festival in honor of Athena. 
imagine a private dinner party, such as Plato describes it in his symposium, or imagine a school setting with Homer as the course book. In such contexts, there would have been no obvious incentive to focus on the people. Indeed, even at the Panathenaia itself, where I have argued there was such an incentive, one could still cry with Andromache and rage with Achilles. The whole point of Homeric epic is arguably that it invites us to empathize with a broad range of experiences and perspectives. So I'm not suggesting that ancient audiences of Homer would have identified just with the people to the exclusion of the heroes. In that sense, my initial question, we the heroes or we the people, is just a tiny bit misleading. I hope you will forgive me. What I am saying is that some of Homer's listeners, some of the time, would have appreciated his attentiveness to issues of leadership and communal well-being more, perhaps, than we tend to do today. What then does such a more people-focused reading of the Iliad and Odyssey bring to light? And here I come to my conclusion. Well, let's come back one more time to the Panathenaia and the point that this festival was not just any old gathering of Homeric listeners, but a festival that celebrated the well-being of the Athenian community. We do not have any of the public prayers that were no doubt uttered on the occasion, but we do have other bits of evidence that help us fill the gap. One text from neighboring Thebes asks the god Apollo to wreathe the people in the flowers or, or with the flowers of the rule of law. Another prayer also to Apollo, and this is on your handout, implores the god to come to an unspecified city, probably Athens, with blessings and to bequeath on its people a peace that blossoms with good governance. In these prayers, the rule of law or good governance guarantees the well-being of the people, which is just what the Athenians celebrated at the Panathenaia. The Odyssey, too, of course, describes the ideal case scenario of a blameless king. We've looked at it, but this is based rather vaguely on justice as an abstract concept, not the rule of law as such. And, of course, the ideal of lasting peace is never actually achieved, not in the text itself, that is. Things are even gloomier in the Iliad. On the Achaean side, Agamemnon and Achilles are so distracted by their own quest for honor that they are prepared to sacrifice the people for it. No one can stop them. There simply is no process for doing so in the world of Homer's heroes. Likewise, on the Trojan side, Paris can wreak havoc entirely unchecked by any constitutional guardrails, the rule of law, or good governance, eunomia, is not a feature of Trojan politics. And even the caring Hector cannot be stopped in time to prevent the worst. Of course, life in classical Athens was not a permanent golden age. 
no one ever thought it was. But in the context of the Panathna in particular, which celebrated the city, it surely seemed superior to the Homeric scenario of the people being at the mercy of their leader's folly, as Horace would later put it. Quid quid delirant reges plectuntur kiwi. Whatever folly the kings cook up, the people pay the price. Allowing us to think this through and feel it through was, I suspect, part of the point of the law that instituted Homeric performances on this occasion. Those performances offered an opportunity, yes, to relish the beauty and the brilliance of the heroes, but also to relive some of the despair of the heroic age. And in the process, there was an opportunity, too, to flush out, to cleanse the body politic of any residual longings for forms of governance that dispensed with the rule of law. I realize that I'm drawing here on the psychology of tragedy as Aristotle understood it. Tragedy, through a process of catharsis, flushes out unwanted emotions. But to me, that makes sense, not just at the general level that Aristotle was, of course, much closer to Homer than we are now, but also because for Aristotle, as already for Plato, tragedy itself derived from Homer. Most ancient readers thought of Achilles as the ultimate exponent of the tragic. Some modern readers have favored Hector. Whoever we choose, Hector or Achilles, or perhaps Andromache, there is a tragedy of the people in Homer, as well as one of the heroes. If we attend to it, we may just be able to flush out some of the unsavory yearnings that have been troubling our own public life of late. Thank you. <laughs>